Well, good morning, church. Morning, church at Essex. Morning, church at North Avenue. Folks watching at home. Another Sunday, and we get to be together and worship together. Ushers, I'm going to have our ushers come forward. We're going to share in our offering together just as, as they're making their way down. My title this morning is How to Not Die Given Your Offering. Um, but I think we're going to go ahead and take the offering first. And then I'll give the message and we'll see how we do here. Uh, you know, see how the offering goes and see if I should have preached first. Let me offer a prayer. Father, as we give this morning, remind us that we get to participate in the fellowship of giving together. It's not under compulsion, not under obligation. We have the opportunity to do this. As we give, remind every one of us that all that we have comes from your gracious hand. That uh, none of this, though we think we're self-made people, none of this is because we're self-made. It's because you are the one who sustains us. It's you who provides every good thing for us. And we, as we give, may you find us to be very thankful people as we give our offerings to you. Bless every gift, bless every giver. In Jesus' name, amen. We're sharing our offering. And if, you didn't, if you're visiting this morning, you didn't come thinking about an offering, don't think about it now. Just be free. Uh, some people will give in the basket. Some people will give online. Are much multiple ways to do it. So you'd be absolutely free uh, this morning as we, uh, as we share in our offering. Just a, one, a couple things just before we get started. Uh, yesterday, of course, we had our summer jam and it was an unqualified success. I mean, just that field packed full of uh, young families, children, uh, just having the time of their life. And the first thing I would say to any of you who volunteered, whether you were there working games, whether you're there making food, whether you were there uh, earlier in the day on Friday setting up and no one ever, no one who ever came ever saw you do a thing because you were in and out with tables. Whether you showed up at four o'clock at the end of the day to take the tables down and no one ever saw you, regardless, if you participated in that, and if you participate in the life of the church every week, volunteering somewhere, I want to say to you again, thank you. I mean, it makes the church come to life. People are ministered to because of your volunteering, and I just want to say thank you for that. I was speaking to a number of folks, and, and uh, yes, yeah, good, go right ahead. I talked to a number of people yesterday, family came up from Waterbury to be here for the event, another family from Barrie, uh, people heard about it, wanted to bring their kids. A couple of lines were really long, you know, whenever you have something that's popular, there's going to be a wait, and I was talking to some of the folks, and one person said, you know, hey, I feel bad for the, the long wait. Their comment was, this is nothing, uh, this is all free, it's unbelievable. I pay $15, I pay money uh, at a fair to go stand in line to do this, and my kids, we get to come here for a couple of hours, uh, they can stand in line, they can do the games and do it all over and over again, and uh, they thanked us thanked us for doing it. So my thanks to you. This morning, we're going to continue talking about the church. As I said, my title is uh, this morning is how to not die giving your offering. Now, immediately, let me say that this is not a sermon on giving. Uh, so you can relax. You don't have to grab your, you know, wallet or clutch your heart like you're going to die. None of that. You can relax. Although, admittedly, when I announced a couple weeks ago we're going to take an offering again Sunday morning, some of you were just about died or wished you were dead or anxiety, whatever. I grew up in church, and we had a fellow in our church who had been a part of the church for years. Every time a sermon was, was preached on giving or talked about giving, he became irate. To the point where later in life, I was, we were actually in a church service with him. Uh, we, were, we were married, had kids, but we were visiting. And the pastor got up and he was going to preach on giving. And to the point where not only was he irate about it, but he quite literally got up and would storm out. He wanted nothing to do with it. Now, interesting thing, what he did have is money. What he didn't have is joy, peace, grace, happiness. Didn't have any of that. You know, they say that money can't buy you, you know, money can't buy you joy, money can't buy you peace, money can't have, buy you happiness. It actually can when you take it and give it to God. And it's amazing what he had and what he didn't have. And so, you know, I start by saying, that's not about giving, so you can relax and just hear this story, which is quite incredible. Now, our text this morning from the Bible is this story about a couple that goes to church and gives their offering, and they drop dead giving their offering. I mean, it's quite a story, actually. Now, to oversimplify it, let me tell you the story. So the husband walks into church to give his offering. He gives his offering. Peter, the apostle Peter, sees him and says, you liar. And with that, the guy just drops dead. 
His wife comes to church a couple hours later and uh, she stops in and she, you know, I could see her walking in and I could see him saying, hey, your husband was here. You just missed him. Uh, and uh, she was checking in to say, you know, just checking to see, did he, did he bring the offering? He did. And then Peter says to her this, he goes, hey, the money he brought, was that all the money from the sale of that property you guys got? And she said, yes, boom. Now she's dead. So this is an intriguing story, I have to tell you. I grew up in church, and I can still remember being in Jerry Potter's fifth, day, fifth grade boy Sunday school class where we were talking about this. Now, it wasn't that he was teaching on it that day, but this story always has a magnetism if you're a kid reading it because it's just something about it that's frightening and exciting and exhilarating and doesn't make sense. And I can remember looking at this, you know, one, of our, one of the boys was saying, look at this story. They dropped dead during the offering. So we were talking, asked Mr. Potter, Mr. Potter, look at this story. They dropped dead giving their offering. Why would, they just, why would God kill them giving their offering? His answer wasn't quite complete, but you have to know him. Good guy, uh, loved Jesus and would fill in the pieces later. But he said, well, it's pretty simple. They didn't, give all the, they didn't give all the money they had, so God killed them. So two things happened from that. Number one, you never saw more generous fifth grade boys ever in your life. And the second thing, it changed the offerings in a new way for us because now as a kid, Sunday mornings, I couldn't wait to watch to see what happened today. You know, is someone dropping dead this morning in the offering? So every week it brought some new excitement uh, and was very disappointing. After a year watching no one dropping, it was very exciting. Now, I said all this in the first service and someone said, you know, you better hope no one has a heart attack or stroke during the service. And I thought, oh, I never thought of that. So... So a couple things, don't, you know, wait till later if you're going to, you know, have something there. Number two, whatever you do, don't leave and go to the bathroom now because now they think, now they think you're leaving because you're mad. So now I, I got you. Now you have to stay no matter what. So be, be absolutely free. Let's talk about this story because this story, now, first of all, Mr. Potter's answer is not the whole story. You, you got to believe that, right? There's more to this story. And let's unpack it because quite honestly, in this story, there's a number of truths about God you really need to see and really need to understand. And so let's talk about it. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. Let me read it for you. It's a little long, but not too bad. Here, But I guarantee you, but if it's long, you'll stay tuned. Here it goes. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece. Now, just notice the word also. Also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. I would expect fear would, would grip them. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, this is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the Holy Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Now you got to know this is why as a fifth grade boy, this is one great story. This is so intriguing. And so she drops dead as well. The young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to, meet, used, to meet, used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by all the people. Now catch this last verse. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number daily. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we need you to do the speaking here, not me. I need you to speak into my life, not me to speak into everyone else's. Well, I need to hear from you. And so I, I, I say again that I don't preach. We're not gathered here for the, for the getting of information. We're here for transformation. And Father, I ask for that transformation in me first before anyone else. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, admittedly, this is the oddest approach to church growth you can ever imagine, killing people during the offering. What a unique approach to growing the church. Let's have people come, bring their offering, strike them dead. Now, the text tells us that this was a frightening thing in the church, and it was a terrifying thing to people outside of the church. Everyone heard about it. But what's also interesting, even with that, more and more people are believing in Jesus. Now, also interesting, this is the first recorded instance of sin in the church. This is the first time we have recorded of, being, of there being sin in the church. Now, sin that had to be dealt with, I should say, in a, in a public way. Sin that could not be ignored. Now, of course, there was always sin in the church from the very beginning. Why? Because there were people there. If there's people in the church, there's sin in the church because it kind of goes with the territory. But, and there was sin from, from day one. You say, well, how can that be? Well, because even though the people were redeemed, they still sin, right? We got that. So we get that sin was there, but this is the first time that sin has to be dealt with publicly. It's a public sin that happened. It was sin that was affecting the church. It was sin that has some grave consequences to the church, sin that had to be dealt with then publicly by the church. I would also just make note that this is the first time we have the word ecclesia used. Remember, we talked about that word ecclesia, the gathered ones. You know, those are, the, those are followers of Jesus. This is the first time when it says that great fear sees the whole church. It's the whole time that word shows up, that the, that the whole fear, uh, fear had seized all of the gathering of, of, of God's followers. So we have this first instance of sin being in the church and having to be dealt with because of its effect in the church. So it's, a, it's kind of an interesting storyline to make note of. Now, right from the start, you need to see a picture. I want to paint for you a picture that is really critical to understanding what happened in the story so that you fully get it and understand it and can compare it to today. So let me paint the picture for you. Here's the picture. So Jesus rises from the dead, comes back from the dead. Bible tells us he stays on this earth for about 40 days. He meets with his disciples. He shows himself to a number of his followers. The disciples choose, during this time, during these 40 days, the disciples choose a replacement for Judas. They choose a man named Matthias. And so the apostles are now back to 12. They're now waiting. And the day of Pentecost comes. Holy Spirit comes upon them. We've talked about all this. Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin to preach. These 120 followers of Jesus now are empowered by the Holy Spirit. They begin to preach. Don't forget, they only have one story they can tell. The story of how Jesus changed their lives, how Jesus died for their sins and came back to life. That's all they have. They have no great discipleship training. They haven't been in Bible study for years. They have no curriculum. They have no navigator press to go buy books. All they have is the story. It's all they have. And they go tell the story. And of course, 3,000 come, 5,000 come, 20,000. And just so you know, 20,000 people, we, we are guessing that's just a, a general smaller ballpark number, but 20,000 people. In the world today, 20,000 people in a church is a megachurch. 20,000 people in that day would be absolutely unheard of. So you have to know huge impact. That's what's taking place. And by the way, I would also say that Acts chapter 4 tells us that they all came together and we talked about this. And one of the marks of these followers of Jesus was, by the way, it was how they lived their lives. But now catch this. By the way, they didn't know each other. So the Bible says you got 20,000 people. They're all out there in sharing, complete shared life together, and they don't know each other. They're not coming in having all sorts of background. They are not coming in from uh, having church shop to see which is the best pastor, who's the music I like best, who's got a choir, who doesn't. They hadn't done any church shopping. All they got is this. And now get this, 20,000 people and the hallmark of their lives is how they shared their lives together. Let's be honest. Some of us have been in the church our whole lives and we refuse to to share life together. So you got these people who don't know one another and nothing matters to them. Everything that they have is one another's and they just share life. And Acts says that with no pushing and no prompting and no pressing, they all shared what they had together. They are enjoying fellowship. We talked about that word, koinonia. They were enjoying fellowship together, the shared life. No one was holding on to things. No one was holding on to extra properties or land. In fact, they would sell their liquid assets so that they could give their money to the church, to the church leaders, to minister to people and to meet the people's needs. Now, here's the picture you need to get with this picture. One of the hallmarks of this group was that they were not just giving, but they were giving with no control. They weren't trying to control their giving. 
you got this picture of the church growing. you got this ch- picture of the church exploding. And you've got this picture that they weren't trying to control their giving. In fact, the Bible makes a st- gives us a statement which tells us something. Back to text, verse 33. So with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the story they had, the only story they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that they were, there was no needy persons among them. And here's why. Because from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales to put it at the apostles' feet. That's the key statement. Put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now, at the apostles' feet, what that means is they weren't trying to control their giving. That term at the apostles' feet basically says this. There was no strings. There was no note attached. They weren't giving saying, well, I'll give, but I'm only going to give if you use it for this. I'm going to give, but I'm going to write a little note in the bottom left-hand corner of the check how I want it spent. I want it directed here. They would give, but it's a little post-it note that say, listen, I'll give, but I want it spent on this account. None of that. When it says they laid it at the apostles' feet, the implication of that, they walked in and laid it at their feet, which basically said this, here, use it. Use it the way you see fit. Use it where you think it needs to be given. Now, can you imagine 20,000 strangers who don't know any better, they don't know one another, who have something and sell it and bring it in and just say, here, use it. I mean, we don't do that today. We know each other really well. And here we've got people who don't know each other who are willing to say, just take it wherever. Do you have a preference? I don't have a preference, just use it. I mean, don't even ask me. This is all for the kingdom. Now, somewhere along the way, and I don't know when, and I don't exactly, we don't have a, a set in t- piece in time that we can see, but somewhere along the way, some people, not all people, and I mean that so sincerely, but some people had a different thought. And somewhere along the way in church history, some people decided that not only would they control their giving, but they figured out they could use their giving to control the church. Not only would they control their giving, but they could use their giving to control people who lead the church to do church the way that they wanted. Friends, one of the most courageous pastors that I've ever met in my life, some of you know him, his name is Mike Hangel. Mike was a pastor at North Avenue Alliance Church. And I say most courageous because he point blank had people in his ministry life who openly tried to withhold their giving in order to force him to do church the way that they wanted. And he and I actually got close through some of that where he just said this, at great personal cost to him, he said, no, I won't be bought. And I will not be threatened. And we're talking about sizable gifts of money. Money that could actually, being withheld, could actually shut down the church. Courageous. They weren't trying to control their giving. They weren't trying to control the church. But a guy then comes into the picture who takes on a very important place in the book of Acts. His name is Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, but we know him by his nickname, and his nickname is given to him. His name is Barnabas. That's his nickname, and his nickname means son of encouragement. Here's the picture of Barnabas we need to see, and here's where he comes into the picture in verse 36, in Acts chapter 4. So don't forget, this was previous to 5 where we're in right now. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now listen carefully. If you want to get a nickname in the church, let me just say to you, pursue that one. Let the whole church know you as the son of encouragement. Don't go after the son of discouragement. That's not a good nickname. Don't be known as the daughter of discouragement. Please don't be known as the father of all negativity. Please don't be known as the mother of all complainers. Just stick with the son of encouragement. Imagine a church church of thousands of people and your nickname is the name that you go by because when people see you, they smile because you bring encouragement into their lives. Let me just stop and say, is that you? If it is, go after it and keep it. If it isn't, go after it and get it. What a great nickname. We're going to call you Barnabas. And listen, if my name is Scott and you decide to call me Barnabas, I'll just go with Barnabas. (laughs) Right? 
I mean, that's the nickname. He's the son of encouragement. So Barnabas comes along, and so we already get this guy that somehow this guy has something infectious about him that people just like having him around. And again, I say, oh, Lord, please raise up people like that, right? So along the way, Barnabas, unprompted, under no compulsion, no pressure, no one else's idea, nobody pulls him inside and says, hey, you got some extra liquid assets, why don't you give those? None of that. He has an idea. I'm going to sell a piece of property I've got. And so he goes and he sells it and he brings all of the money and he lays it at the apostles' feet. Apparently, from what we can tell, this is the first time it happened. He's the guy who started and said, you know, God's prompted me to do this thing, just going to do it. And he lays the money at their feet. So this is in chapter 4, and this is important. So at the end of chapter 4, you've got this incredible picture of the start of the church. You've got thousands of people. You've got the church growing. People are caring for one another, ministering to one another. People are freely giving. Money is is flowing. Everyone's ministered to. It is a beautiful, incredible picture. End of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, they have one bad Sunday. It all goes south in one Sunday. You know, I've been in church business long enough to know it can all go south in just one service. One Sunday, and this is their story. This is what happens. Back to our story. I've read it, but I'm hit, hit again. So now a man named Ananias, it's church gathering time, together with his wife Sapphira, they sell a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it? That Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. See, that should be perplexing to you, right? It's kind of like, well, that's okay, isn't it? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but you've lied to God. And then when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. So Barnabas does this incredibly generous act. He sells a field that he has, and he brings the proceeds in, and he lays it at the disciples' feet. And people loved it. People thought this was incredible. Let me just tell you a side note for you. One of the great moments in churches is when there's an unexpected gift that you don't expect, and everyone is excited because it's like someone just felt led to do that. And when it happens, it's an incredible moment. Now, in this setting, where everyone is very more intimate in their world, meaning they didn't travel, you know, from Barrie or, or, you know, from Northfield or from up in the Canadian border, whatever, to get here, it was all one community. So, travel, word traveled really fast. But the bottom line is, he brings it, and everyone is just psyched. This is just exciting. I mean, no one's prompting, and this guy does that. It's like incredible. And so other people begin to do the same thing. And from every thing we can see, they don't do it because they had to. They don't do it because Barnabas now went out and said, see, look what I did. Why don't you match it? None of that. They didn't do it to try to one-up Barnabas. They didn't do it to try to say, well, we want to be better than Barnabas. They did it because of the spirit of the fellowship of giving. It's infectious. And so they're all looking at each other going, man, this is great. We'll do that. So they do that. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they're part of the group, and so the Spirit comes over them, and they're in. And so they go do the same thing. They go sell a piece of property. But before they bring the proceeds in to lay it at the disciples' feet, they decide to keep some of that money for themselves. You say, well, why would they do that? Well, maybe they had medical bills. Maybe they had kids going to college, trying to plan for retirement. Maybe they had an unexpected house repair. Maybe their donkey broke down on the side of the road, and you know the cost of donkeys today. Now, I've given you things that you would say, well, sure, you know, things happen, you got to fix. But let's just be honest. Maybe they just decided to keep some. That'd be okay. You know, don't, don't get the story here that, well, maybe they kept some for, you know, a really good reason. Maybe there was no really good reason other than the fact they just decided to keep some. They wanted to go on vacation. They wanted to buy that thing. For whatever reason, they kept some money back to the... Um, to sell the property, they decide to sell the property like others had done. And then they show up and they lay the money at the apostles' feet like the others had done, minus the amount that they kept for themselves. Now, make sure you get this. If you don't get this, then you're really in trouble as you inter- interpret the story. The sin is not that they didn't give everything. The fact that they didn't give everything, that is not the sin. That's not sin. You don't have to give everything. In fact, you read the story carefully, you'll see they were never commanded to give everything. 
In fact, they weren't even commanded to give anything. It's critical here. They weren't commanded to give anything at all. They didn't have to give one cent. God didn't tell them to go sell their house or their land. God never demanded that of them. The selling was completely voluntary. It was all on their own doing. It was no sin to keep something back. They could sell the land and they could keep something back. In fact, they could sell the land and they could actually keep everything back. So you have to understand that. They could have sold the land and kept all of the money. It's no sin. The sin is not in selling. The sin is not in keeping. Well, then what is the sin? Well, here it gets a little harder. Because admittedly, the sin that's here is a secret sin. See, that's why it gets a little harder because you can't identify the sin very quickly. It's actually a secret sin. It's something that's, that's quite hidden. In fact, not only though is it a secret sin, it is probably the most devastating sin in the church. And the most devastating sin to the church. Not just in, but actually to the church. So what is it? Well, you see, they wanted to have spiritual status. They wanted to be elevated and exalted. What they really wanted, they wanted to be honored. They wanted to be appreciated like all the other people had done. They wanted to be seen as godly and generous and sacrificial, but they really weren't any of those three things. They wanted to appear that they were giving up everything. So they made the pretense of giving it all. And what they did is they tried to create the impression that they were something that they were not. So what is that secret sin? It's called hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy, friends, is absolutely devastating to the church. Hypocrisy is destructive within the church, and hypocrisy is so destructive outside of the church. God hates the sin of hypocrisy. But the problem, one of the key problems with hypocrisy is it's hard to see. It's hard to find. It's hard to locate. It normally survives for very, very long periods of time without anyone ever knowing. In fact, quite honestly, in some cases, we never find out that a person was a hypocrite because they die and they cover it so well. I mean, quite honestly, there are many cases where a hypocrite covers it so well, long, so well for so long that the hypocrisy is completely hidden and we never, ever know or find out. You see, by very nature, hypocrisy is a mask. It's a, it's, a, it's a disguise. But in this moment, for some reason, in this story, um, hypocrisy is exposed by God himself. Now, I'm guessing, side note, I'm guessing the offering was over the top the following week. What do you think? I'm just thinking next week when the offering came, I'll bet, man, I'll bet money just flowed that week. Just thinking. Now, obviously, understanding the story, obviously, they had publicly declared that they were giving it all. They had made the, made the distinction that they were giving all the proceeds just as everyone else has done. The problem was everyone else actually did it. And they were not doing it. They just wanted you to think that they were doing it. They made the pretense that they were someone that they weren't that they were doing something that they weren't, that they had given something that they hadn't. Let me just stop right there. Aren't you glad that apparently God does not kill off all hypocrites today? Huh? Aren't we happy about that? But it should make, the, make you question, well, what happened then? You know, why in that moment? Now, you could wonder, well, Scott, first of all, how, do you, how can you say that the sin of hypocrisy is the most devastating? Now, I didn't say that it's the worst sin. I just said it's a devastating sin. But you say, well, how could you say most devastating? One I would suggest, you look at the evidence. And here's the evidence I'll suggest you, take, you think about. You go back and look in church history. The time that the church has, has blown up in size, has grown, has exploded with growth. Go back and look, and every single time the church has been persecuted, it explodes in growth. Go back and look at the first century church. You have these Christians that are being killed. They're being chased down, beaten, imprisoned, losing their lives, made as slaves. What happens in 300 years? Christianity overtakes the whole known world. And the whole Roman Empire becomes Christian. 
in the, under the worst persecution we can imagine. Go look at China. China, the most, the, the most oppressive country with incredible persecution of Christians. And we, re- we recognize today that there are millions upon millions upon millions of Chinese believers meeting in little house churches under the worst persecution you can imagine. Go look at the story of Vietnam, which I shared with you some time ago. Story of Vietnam. When, when Vietnam fell, the North Koreans took over South Korea. Uh, we, we, we had to get out of there as a country. We took every, every missionary that was in, uh, in South Vietnam was pulled out so that we had no idea what happened to the church of Jesus Christ. When we finally get back in there 20, 30 years later, over a million and a half believers, when we left, there maybe 100,000. Under the worst persecution, people were giving up their lives. And so you have to ask yourself the question, well, how is it that persecution did that? You see, persecution only does one thing, and that is it gets rid of all the hypocrites. It only does one thing. Because the bottom line is nobody's willing to die for pretend faith. No one is willing to stop and watch their children die, their children be beaten or persecuted. Nobody's willing to do that for pretend faith. So the one mark we have is that when persecution hits the church, the church gets really pure very, very quickly, and then the power of God takes over. So Ananias comes to church, ready to receive his honor and his praise for the money that he's about to put at the apostles' feet, and immediately Peter sees the deception, and you have to ask the question, well, how did Peter know? Well, there's only one explanation. Ananias certainly hadn't told everybody they kept money out. Sapphira certainly wasn't out telling people they kept money out. The only answer is in that moment, the Holy Spirit gave to Peter the gift of discernment, the gift of knowledge, the gift of, of, of foretelling, whatever it might you want to call it. At that point, Ananias walks in and Peter knows clearly because God has revealed it to him. This is not the real deal. So Peter says, what made you think that you could lie to us but yeah, anybody can do that. But it made you think you could actually lie to God. You know, you not only just lied to us, but you lied to him, and he didn't take it lightly. And with those words, Ananias drops dead. And when that happened, it says everyone was scared to death, as we would be today, right? Everyone's fearful. Now, the text tells us that uh, in the church that morning, there were some members of the uh, high school group that was getting money for a trip to life. And um, (laughs) when the guy dropped dead, they said, hey, we'll go bury him and maybe you can contribute to the life fund. So the youngsters, it says, the young men pick him up, take him out, and they bury him. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking, as they're going out, they're wondering, what just happened? I mean, because don't forget, they're fearful as well. They go out, they're doing their business. But one of the questions you have to ask yourself is, well, where's Sapphira? You know, he goes to church, brings a gift. Where is she? Why isn't, doesn't she come with him? Well, we're not exactly sure, but I can, we can make some pretty intelligent guesses. Let me explain how we, how we kind of put it together. So here's why, how I think it went. So they're getting ready to go to church. And Ananias says, man, this is our big day. And I don't want to be late again. <laughs> it's just simple, simple he goes listen it's our big day I don't want to be late again listen in five minutes I'm leaving five minutes I'm leaving if you're not ready I'm going without you and so he walks out and he goes to church and he leaves her so he goes but she doesn't come now why three hours because I gotta tell you it takes a little time to get the hair and the clothes just right when you've got to get the hair and clothes just right on all of the kids without any help from her slug of a husband. Now, see how I recovered that real quick? <laughs> see, some of you thought I was going down another path, and shame on you for thinking that. It was because she had to do it all her own, take care of the kids. That's what the issue was. But for whatever reason, three hours later, she shows up in church, and here's her story. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the plan? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. At At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. 
Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Peter sees her, probably uh, sees her coming. She's probably coming up to ask, did my husband get here? Did he bring the money? Uh, you know, he left me at home all by myself, had to get things ready. And, you know, here I am. And Peter says, oh, yeah, 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 he was here. You just missed him. Uh, did he give his offering? Yeah, he did. Hey, by the way, the offering he gave, was that all the money you got for the, for the property? Now, pause right here. Listen. You know, laughter's over here just for a quick second. Is that all the money you got? Do you realize in this moment all she has to do is be honest? All she has to say is, no, we kept some. And Peter would say, man, thanks for the offering. God bless you. You see, the praise would have been the same. The honor would have been the same. The, the pleasure of God would have been the same. No, we kept some out. Okay, great. God bless you. Thank you for this gift. In one split second, one word decides her destiny. Is this all the money? No. It's not what she decides. She says, yeah, that's it. Boom. She's dead. Buried by her husband. Now just imagine if you're the young men and you just got back from burying one and you walk in and just as you walk in, another goes down. It's like, what is going on here? You know, just, are we, uh, any more, Peter? Are you expecting any more while we're gone? While we're out, we might as well dig a couple of holes just in case. Is this the new thing for the offerings? You know, I get it. People feel like they're going to die when they give, but are they really going to die when they give? Peter, what's the deal here? Okay, let me finish with some applications. Let me give you some applications because there actually are incredible truths in the story that we haven't even hit yet because I just gave you the story in color. Here's the truth. A couple of lessons that are really important for us to get. Lesson number one. In the church, there are two kinds of people, and it's nearly impossible to tell them apart. Truth number one is in the church, in life in general, but in the church, there are two, two kinds of people, and it's nearly impossible to tell them apart. You see, Barnabas had just sold property and joyfully brought the money as an offering to God and laid it at the disciples' feet. And Ananias comes and does the exact same thing and you can't tell a difference. Take Peter out of the mix right now and they've both done the exact same thing. You can't tell them apart. On the outside, it looks like any other donor giving their gifts. Ananias and Sapphira just look like everyone else, just look like Barnabas. It looked like they were doing the same thing. There are two kinds of people in the church. There's the ones who are the real ones and the ones who are fake, and they are worlds apart, but they look the same, and you can't tell them apart. And that works in life too, right, in general. It's truth number one. Truth number two, they may all look alike, these two kinds of people. You may not be able to tell them apart, but the truth number two is, but you can't hide it from God. You can't hide it from God. Maybe we can't tell the real from the fakes, but make no mistake, God is not fooled. He sees the difference clearly. And friends, despite our foolish thinking, there are no locked doors or hidden closets for God's spirit. None. There's nothing that you lock away. You see, we think that we have hidden something from God in some particular moment. But if we could only see in that particular moment where we think it's well hidden and covered from God's point of view, if we could just see that in God's point of view, it's playing on a screen as big as the world. There is absolutely nothing that is hidden from his eyes. I cannot see inside of your heart to discern whether you're a Barnabas or an Ananias. And please know that's not directed at you because I'll take the next statement. And you cannot see inside of my heart to discern if I am a Barnabas or an Ananias. But I will say this, but the secrets of our hearts are not secrets to God. Make sure you get that. The things that we think we keep secret from the world are not secret from him. Let me tell you the one huge mistake that Ananias made, the same mistake that I make, the same mistake that you make, and here it is. He got so caught up in living in the moment in this world that he forgot that there is another world. 
He got so caught up in his world in this moment, he forgot about there's a God who is eternal. And that this moment is only a blip on the screen in comparison to eternity. You see, when I remember that, it changes how I live, right? When I remember that, it changes the decision I'm going to make in this moment. When I decide, when I remember that, it puts into perspective all these other things in life. The things that I let control me, the things that I let determine what I'm going to do next, I forget about the fact that this is just a moment in time. And there's a God who sees it all. And there's an eternity before us. There is a God and there is an eternity. And we ultimately answer to him. Let me give you the third lesson. The closer we are to grace, the greater the offense. The closer we are to grace, the greater the offense. Let me explain that. You have to wonder in this story, not everyone who lies gets struck down dead immediately for their sin. I mean, if they did, number one, I wouldn't be preaching to you today. And you might think I'm making judgmental. I'm saying I wouldn't be here preaching to you today. I mean, it would be empty. So apparently, people aren't struck down for their sins. You're going, well, why? So why Ananias and Sapphira? Now, we're not exactly sure, but quite honestly, I'll give you some thoughts on it. And the first thing we realize, these two people were believers. They were Christians. They were followers of God. So we're not talking about some fake as in fake followers. They weren't just pretending to be, but they weren't. Everything we know about them is they were followers of Jesus Christ. And even their names speak to their walk with God. Ananias' name means the Lord is gracious. Her name, Sapphira, means God's beautiful jewel. Grace and beautiful. They knew God's grace and they knew God's beauty, but they did not live up to their names because their actions were not graceful, their actions were not beautiful. So the first thing I would tell you this, I expect that their deaths, much like a lot of what we read in Acts, was used by God as a sign. I can't explain exactly why them, why then, but I'm thinking, number one, a sign. You see, God gives signs of his power. God demonstrates his power multiple times in multiple ways. He shows us his power through his miracles. He shows us his power through his healings. He shows us his power through the things that he does in changing people's lives for the better. And he demonstrates his power even in his judgment. I think it's a sign that God would say, please know, Every breath is borrowed, and I am the giver of breath. This didn't happen to others in the church, but that should not cover up the fact that this moment is a picture of how God feels about it. That's the first thing I would say. Second thought, I would say this. Ananias and Sapphira had seen the work of the Holy Spirit so closely and so intimately that the seriousness of their hypocrisy could not be ignored. I'm thinking in, in this picture, they knew better. Quite honestly, let those words sink in. They knew better. This was not a rookie mistake. This was not something they stumbled into. This was not some like, oh man, I'm so sorry. This was something that they knew absolutely better and they deliberately went on and went forward with it. They understood the Spirit's prompting because they did all this at the Spirit's prompting. They understood it. They lived so close to the Holy Spirit. It makes the offense all the worse. And all I can think of is at that moment, God had said, this has to be a moment where people realize serious business. Let me give you the fourth lesson. Fourth lesson. Some of you aren't going to like this. The fourth one is fear is a part of worship. The fear of God is a part of worship. Now, for some of us, man, that is so repulsive, right? Because I like to think, oh, I like the love of God. I like the grace of God. And he's a merciful God. And, you know, he's my best friend type of picture. But hear me out. Fear has to be a part of worship. Now, it's no surprise that these dramatic deaths called, caused a great deal of fear in the church. If it happened here today, there'd be a great fear in the church. But what is surprising, so that's not surprising, but what is surprising is that more and more people still join the church. See, that doesn't make any sense. Think about that. This moment comes, which in our thought process ought to not only create fear, but ought to have everyone running out of the church. And what the text says is that they were terrified and fearful, and yet every single day, more and more and more, men and women said, I want into that. How do you explain that? 
Because humanly, our thought process is that just does not work. Well, it did work. John Newton, former slave trainer, who became a follower of Jesus, wrote to him Amazing Grace. Probably the most recognized hymn ever in history. That hymn has not only been sung by Christians and in churches, but has even made the pop charts long ago uh, in, in secular world, Amazing Grace. Now, what's interesting, if you go back and look at the, pick up a hymn book and, and, or go online and look in your phone, you'll see that the words Amazing Grace written by John Newton. And then it says melody or the hymn tune, unknown. Don't know who wrote the music. Well, we have a pretty good guess as who wrote the music. I mean, not take that back. We have a pretty good guess where he heard the tune. He was a slave trader. And the melody to Amazing Grace, we believe, was a melody that he would have heard from the property of human beings called slaves that he carried in the hold of his ship. He wasn't a follower, but we believe that the tune he would have heard would have been a tune of amazing grace that these slaves in chains and in bondage to a very unknown future would be singing in the hold of his ship. And one day, John Newton finds Jesus. And he writes the word to amazing grace to the tune of many of these slaves who are on their way to death. Now, he writes a verse in Amazing Grace that I guarantee that you have sung and have never stopped to think what it means. He wrote these words, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear." Well, how does that work? That's gotta go against everything in our being, right? I mean, grace and fear, that doesn't go together. How does that work? Grace brings out fear? I don't want any part of God that does that. Anyone who loves the picture of the grace of God and the love of God would look at that and say, fear, grace taught my heart to fear? I'm trying to forget fear, not learn it. Catch this. God's incredible grace and God's unconditional love only makes sense when we compare it to his immense power and his glory. You see, you know, if I give somebody grace, so what? Because I'm as failed and flawed as the next guy. But see, God's grace only really makes sense when it's compared to his immense holiness. Grace, his love, his friendship, only makes sense when you realize his absolute power and the fact that he alone is perfect and he alone has all of the power and I have none. And whenever you realize that someone else has all the power, guess what that produces? Fear. And in the same breath as that fear, you recognize that the one who holds all the power and all the control, he's the one who loves us with an unfailing love. Someone once defined fear of God as this. Fear of God is awe mixed with intimacy. What a great picture. You see, we are invited into the most intimate relationships with God. And that intimacy reveals the reality of his power and the depth of his love. And so I say this to you, until you see him for who he is and you realize the fear of God, you don't begin to understand the grace of God or the love of God. So it's grace that teaches our hearts to fear. Last lesson and we close. Sin is a deadly matter to God. Make no mistake, sin is a deadly matter. Believers who deliberately choose to defy God should know that this is serious business. This is serious stuff. But some will say this, but if God really cares so much about sin, then why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't he take action? Why doesn't he send plagues? Why doesn't he punish people? R.C. Sproul wrote this. It's just so insightful. He said these words. We forget that God's patience with sin is designed to lead us to repentance, not for us to become bolder in our sin. See, we say, hey, God's not doing anything. Must be okay. We forget that God's patience is to give us time to repent 
change our ways, not to just get bolder. So let's wrap up. Here's the final question for the day. Here's the question that we should be asking. The question isn't, why did God strike down Ananias and Sapphira? You know the right question, right? The question is, why are we all still standing? That's the question. And when you ask that question, it begins to change your whole outlook. When you say, well, why am I here? Ah, grace. So I decided to do to end the service. I'm going to have the ushers come back. We're going to take a second offering. <laughs> now, see, listen. See, you got it. First service, I, I bombed. I said the exact same. Listen, I went back. I said the exact same line. I said it the exact same way. I had the exact same face, the same timing. And I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have the ushers come back and take an offering. Not one smile or one word. <laughs> For a split second, I was afraid that somebody was going to drop dead. And now what do I do? I don't want that in my preaching record. No, no offering. But I would say to you this. When you recognize that what God asks of you is just be who you are before him. And then go live out his grace. Well, then not only will you not drop dead giving, you will give with absolute joy in multiple ways. It'll be the hallmark of your life. And one of my goals for you would be that you'd get the name Barnabas, son of encouragement. Stand, please, let's pray. Lord Jesus, first, I want to thank you for not striking dead all liars and all hypocrites. I say that as a liar and a hypocrite. Thank you. I don't exactly know why Ananias and Sapphira I do know that there's a lesson there that we be wise to look at and to recognize how serious you take how we live our lives. So I thank you for that lesson in my life today. As we leave this place, oh Lord, raise up Barnabases, people who are just encouragers and not just about the giving. But I pray as well in that capacity, you would raise up people just like that New Testament church who would say, ah, I'm not going to try to control my giving. God, look what you've done for me. Here's my money. Here's my resources. Here's my time. Here's my gifts. Lord, just use them to build your church. And then watch the church go. Dismiss us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Straight.